0: Welcome, listeners. We're back with another episode of Out of the Box, hosted by Jonathan Russo. Today, we'll be continuing our series Through the Marxist Lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. We're focusing on inequality and Marxist take on the issue today. Now, It's my understanding that the issue of inequality was central to Marxist thought and that he blamed capitalism for inequality. Some may think this a little odd because inequality has, as far as I can see, been going on since recorded history. So why was Marx so focused on inequality in the 19th century and why did he think his ideas could change it?
1: This is a great topic and, and I think you framed the issue correctly. That Certainly inequality has been a constant throughout most of human history. And as, as Marx had pointed out in the Communist Manifesto, the, the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. But what makes it particularly pertinent to our existence in a liberal capitalist society is that for the first time in history, we live in an age where politically we purport to promote equality, right? Liberty and equality and fraternité was the, the slogan of the French Revolution. The Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So we are a society that seeks to promote equality, and yet we live in a society that is terribly unequal in terms of the distribution of wealth, income, social status, and political power. And Marx's analysis was that the trend toward ever-increasing inequality would continue indefinitely into the future, so long as we remained in a capitalist society. And even many of our own founding fathers argued that when you cross a certain threshold of inequality, it becomes incompatible with political democracy and Republican government and begins to erode and undermine even the claims to political equality. So that's why it's a constant
0: political issue in our society. So, in other words, the serfs in Russia and the Russian czar and aristocracy never even thought that there was an idea that everybody should be equal. The same in the Roman Empire the same in the Ottoman Empire. So this is a sort of late stage historical development. And that's why Marx was able to say maybe we can change this for the first time in recorded history. Yeah, this is really a modern phenomenon.
1: If you were to go back to the Middle Ages, for example, the dominant cultural uh, metaphor was what we now call the great chain of being, that (laughs) people perceived the universe as being organized in a hierarchy from God to the Pope to the King to the Count and so on. Everybody had their place, and there was no idea that people would or should be equal. That's really a phenomenon that only begins to
0: emerge in the 1500s and 1600s in in the Western civilization. Wow. So Marx, in a sense, was at the right time in the right place for his ideas. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. We all have our statistics, uh, I think, or our sense of inequality, and I'm going to throw out the first one in our ping pong today of inequality milestones. It's a little obscure, but it's my favorite. The New York City Transit Authority, uh, is a massive undertaking. It it has trains and buses uh, throughout New York City, and if anybody has ever been on them, the subways, uh, it, it's just it's uh, enormous. It goes from the Bronx to Brooklyn. It goes from Queens to to the West Side. Um, something like a billion people a year use the New York City subways and buses. It employs fifty thousand people on a regular basis to keep it running. It is the very heartbeat of the city. Because of the COVID epidemic, it's in the whole $16 billion, ridership has disappeared, basically, for the year. The government is scrambling to fund that. The state doesn't have any money. It's broke also. It's just a catastrophe. They're talking about massive budget cuts. Under Biden's you know, new stimulus plan, most of that was bailed out. So, Professor, $16 billion in the hole to make the transit authority a hole for the year. Jeff Bezos has hundred and eighty-three, about $183 billion in net worth. I calculated that if he distributed 11 percent of his net worth, he could fix the entire New York City subway system, make it whole. That's one of the most astounding examples of inequality and like misappropriation of resources that I, I could ever come up with. We'll go over the many more. But that's just so bizarre that he could just take out his checkbook and make the New York City subway system whole. How did you yeah. get to that point? How did Marx think we got there? Well, it's two
1: things. I mean, I think it's important to draw a distinction in Marxist political theory between wealth and income. We often focus on on income. But there are essentially two ways that you can generate an income. One is through your labor, and you get paid a wage or a salary, which is how most of us earn our living. Or you own wealth. You get paid because you own things, the so-called means of production, the factories, the mines, the land, the banks. And you generate most of your income from profit, rents, interests, and capital gains, which is how a person like Jeff Bezos makes most of his money. He doesn't earn his income from working. He earns his income from owning things. And Marx's general law of capitalist accumulation suggests that the the natural laws of competition in capitalism lead to ever greater concentrations of industry and therefore ever greater concentrations of wealth among a smaller and smaller group of people who own that wealth. And I'll give you a similar figure to the one that you just gave, <laughs> please. Uh, and this comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, so not exactly a Marxist <laughs> institution. They estimate that there's $96.1 trillion in total wealth in the United States as of 2019. 10% of the population owns 75% of that wealth. That means that 10% of Americans own about $75 trillion in wealth. So to take your example, if you taxed away just 10% of that wealth, you could fund more than three Joe Biden infrastructure plans. You could literally rebuild the entire country from the ground up. So the idea that we don't have the money to fund these kinds of projects is simply preposterous
0: when you look at the numbers. Okay. Forbes, not exactly known as a Marxist mouthpiece, uh, has pointed out that the top 1% of the people in the United States own more money than the entire middle class. And we think of ourselves as a middle class country, not even close.
1: Not at all. In fact, drawing on the same kinds of things, uh, it's the the top 10% of people in the country own more than the bottom 80%. Right. (laughs) And by the way, an important thing to remember is that this distribution, according to the Federal Reserve Board figures, gets more unequal with each passing year. Another way of thinking about this is in 1979, the U.S. gross domestic product was a little over $6 trillion. It's now over $19 trillion as of 2019. So we've tripled the amount of wealth in this country, yet the average wage for the average worker has remained stagnant throughout that entire 30-year period. Where did that money go? It all went to the top 1 to 10 percent. One of the important things to remember about the the so-called wage stagnation that we've seen in this country since 1979 is that it does have very significant racial uh, undertones, which we've talked about earlier. Yes. In fact, the one demographic group which has actually seen its real wages decline throughout this entire extended period are white males with no college education. yep, And that is, of course, the group that is most supportive of Donald Trump, uh, that votes for him in the largest proportion, and that is sort of the, the angry white male population that we talk about. So there is a very real economic underpinning uh, to Trumpism uh, that's, that's based in really the decline of the white working class. And that's not to say that blacks and Hispanics have fared very well either. Their wages have have increased by very small proportions during this same period of time. But the reality is uh, wage inequality has also increased. And what's become apparent is that a college education is the dividing line. People with college degrees, which are about the top 20, 30 percent of the population, have done better than the other 80 percent, not as good as the 1 percent, but better uh, but generally speaking, 80% of the American population have seen their standards of living either stagnate or decline uh, since 1979, despite
0: the fact that we've tripled the amount of wealth in this country during that period. Is that why 63% of people now are living paycheck to paycheck of people don't have $400 if their car broke down or they had a medical emergency. I mean, I don't think the the wealthy class in this country really understands how impoverished most people really are, how close to the the wall that they've been put by this economic disparity. It's really frightening. And it's been talked about a lot by politicians. And these headlines are from CNBC. I mean, you know, this isn't yeah, this this stuff is really you know out there in the mainstream media. Well, in fact, if we talk about income and you
1: know living paycheck to paycheck, uh, the numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau document that as of 2019, 20 percent of the population, uh, that's you know the wealthy to the upper middle class, earned 52 percent of all the income in the United States. And to give you a sense, and the richest 5% earned 23% of all the income, five times the proportion in the population. And if you want to know how much that is, it's $451,000 per year in income, puts you in the top 5% of Americans, and uh, if, if we relate that to contemporary politics, the Biden tax plan will not tax anyone making less than $400,000. So the Biden tax plan is really targeted at the top 5 to 6% of income earners. And quite fairly, I might add, because that is the group that has most benefited from economic growth in our society for the last 30 years, 40 years. Okay.
0: How did it get to this point? My cursory understanding of Marxism is this. Marx said that the capitalist class the dominant capitalist class would write its own rules they would use the media they would use politics the society's uh, social norms whatever tools they had to make sure that the society functioned for the owners of capital in a big way so how have they done that clyde that our society is so unequal over over and have become so much more so what tools what mechanisms politics media uh, yeah uh Well, two things here. Uh,
1: One, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Marx's analysis of capitalist development was that its natural tendency would be to generate ever greater inequalities of wealth and income as it progressed forward without any intervening factors. Now, Marx envisioned that intervening factor to be a socialist revolution at some point in the future. Uh, That never happened. One thing did happen in the meantime, however, and that was the New Deal. The New Deal period from about 1945 to 1975 is the only period in the history of Western civilization, Western Europe and the United States in particular, where we actually saw inequalities of income decline. Inequalities of wealth did not decline, but inequalities of income did decline. And that was primarily because of government redistributive programs strengthening unions to bargain for higher wages and benefits, increases in the minimum wage, the 40-hour workweek, Social Security, and a variety of other social welfare programs. As you know, that all began to be dismantled in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, and just as Marx would have predicted, as <laughs> soon as you lifted those governmental restrictions on the free market economy, two things happened. Inequality began to increase again, and the economy became more volatile so that each recession that we've seen has been successively worse than the one before, which makes you wonder, as Marx predicted, are we yet again headed for this cataclysmic, apocalyptic collapse that will finally
0: wake people up to the fact that this system is not sustainable in its current form? Well. Wow. That's really interesting, and of course, not only do we have economic instability, but we have one scandal after another, starting with the Reagan savings and Loan scandal. Wall Street and the economy in general has just created a scandalous situation of misallocation well, of capital, and then the government has to bail it out.
1: Another good point there uh, with respect to scandals and, and corruption, because it, it really flies in the face of this myth of the hardworking entrepreneur rags to riches. There was a famous uh, Marxist historian, Gustavus Meyer, who at the turn of the 20th century wrote a book called The Great American Fortunes, where he looked at the origins of the wealth of families like the Astors, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, and so forth. And one of his most famous quotes was that behind every great fortune, there is a great
0: crime. (laughs) Yes, I've heard that said. So take us through, what would Marx say, what kind of dead end did the New Deal hit? That everybody thought, well, this doesn't work anymore. We don't need this. We need to do oh, something else. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think uh There were two things. One is that there was a very significant business offensive that that mobilized with groups like the Business Roundtable, the Committee for Economic Development, the Conference Board, who began to lobby very hard because the reality was that the improvements in standards of living for average Americans did come at the expense of corporate profits. Uh And at a certain point, they decided they'd had enough of this so-called profits grease and that they wanted to start distributing income back up to the top of the income scale. And so they began to lobby for corporate tax decreases and decreases in the top marginal personal income tax rates on the wealthy. And of course, the promise they made was, and if you give us all this money, we will reinvest it in the United States and create jobs, and therefore everybody will benefit the so-called trickle-down Trickle-down, yeah. And we, you know, Americans were sold that bill of goods, and unfortunately, large numbers of people bought into it even though it's failed. And of course, when it failed, the response was, well, it didn't work because we didn't do enough of it. So we need to do another round of corporate tax cuts and reduce the marginal tax rates on the wealthy even further. And it still didn't work. So the reality is, I think people have finally realized, and and Joe Biden seems to have learned that lesson, that this trickle-down theory just doesn't work. It has never worked worked and that we need to move in a fundamentally different direction which it seems that we may be
0: on the verge of doing in this country one of the tricks that i noticed in that was pulled on people in our society was debt when the trickle-down theory didn't work people didn't understand why they couldn't afford a bigger home they couldn't afford a newer car they couldn't take another vacation they didn't get it so what they did was they borrowed from their homes during the mortgage crisis they wanted to continue this like lifestyle that was promised them by the entrepreneurs at madison avenue but they used debt to do that and that had disastrous consequences in the recession of 2008 2007. absolutely and always remember
1: who owns the debt it's the oh. same people who own the means of production so debt becomes another form of income redistribution from the bottom to the top they're also the class that owns most government debt as well. So it becomes a way of, of taxing ordinary Americans to redistribute income to the top of the income strata. Debt was, yeah, very much a, an important part of it, and, and that, too, looks like we may finally get
0: some debt relief for students, I hope. Right. Right. Okay, let's talk about the Trump tax cuts, as Marx would see it. He went out and sold this idea that you know, we were going to have these massive tax cuts. We we're going to cut the taxes on the corporations. We were going to cut the taxes on a whole host of other financial transactions. And it ended up at the end of the day that something like 85% of all the tax cuts went to the top 1% and the rest of the 15% was distributed to, to Joe Paycheck. Mm-hmm. Didn't anybody see this coming? Is this like a classic capitalist trick that Marx would have said, yeah, this is exactly what you know the overclass will yep. do, this is what the political class will do? Well, and the perplexing thing about it is that,
1: yes, people did see it. It was talked about. People were told this is this was the game that was being played. And yet, you know, at the time that that Trump was elected, Republicans controlled the House, they controlled the Senate, so they were able to push it through because business is their constituency. I think people saw through it, but it was too late because the damage had already been done, and now we're trying to repair the damage left behind. And basically, all Joe Biden is proposing with his tax increases is to claw back some of those Trump giveaways, not all of it, but at least just some of it. Keeping in mind that Jeff Bezos, to use him as an example again, saw his wealth increase by $70 billion uh, during this pandemic and recession that we're in. So he got wealthy off of COVID because everybody turned to Amazon. Yeah,
0: that's really clear. Of course, another episode, I should the say future. wealthier, wealthier, <laughs> we need to do an episode which we will about his stance in the union organization. Uh, by the time we do the next episode or two episodes from now, we may actually know the results of that union vote. But I think it's a very profound instance here of capitalism and labor coming to heads over the issues that are taking place in that factory in uh, Alabama. But I digress. Talk to me about Bernie Sanders. What's Bernie's role? We all saw the polls that he might have won against Trump. He actually had they nominated him instead of Hillary. He might have gotten the blue-collar vote and gotten the 44,000 people that uh, that switched from Obama to, to Trump in the 2016 election. What would Marx say about uh, the rise of Bernie? Well, I think that, that his rise
1: at the time should have been no surprise. It, it's what one would have anticipated under such circumstances. Uh, Although it is significant, it's the first time that we've seen a bona fide socialist candidate run for president in this country. Uh, I would say since Eugene Debs, although we had Norman Thomas, you know, in the 40s and 50s. (laughs) Bernie really comes out of that legacy uh, of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is kind of the uh, watered down version of the old American Socialist Party. I wouldn't consider Bernie Sanders a Marxist. You know, there are lots of socialists who are not necessarily Marxist, but who fall within this category that would be described as uh, maybe revisionist Marxist, democratic socialist, evolutionary socialist. I think following more in the footsteps of, of Edward Bernstein, who was a German socialist social democrat, prominent 1890s, early 1900s, really committed the movement to a parliamentary and peaceful transition to political power. So, you know, Bernie really, I think, draws on
0: that legacy sure. than sort of Lenin or somebody, you know, in and the sure. government camp. And just out of curiosity, did, did Marx see that as like a way station or a dead end? Was it was that a transition to what he wanted to have this dictatorship of the proletariat? Or did he see that as a, you know, a false capitalism trying to save itself with like sort of, you know, Marxism light? Uh, That's really an ongoing debate
1: (laughs) among Marxist political theorists. You know, Marx says different things. You know, in the Communist Manifesto in 1848, he makes it very clear that we can only achieve our means by force. But by the 1870s, there's some speeches he gave uh, where he's saying, well, you know, it might be possible to have a peaceful democratic transition in democratic countries. And the three he named at the time were the United States, England and the Netherlands. Uh, and later, Engels sort of, his collaborator Frederick Engels embraced that idea uh, in Germany with the rise of the German Social Democratic Party. So, you know, that's one of the big enduring schisms uh, within Marx's political theory is exactly that debate over political strategy. But you can
0: find evidence in Marx for both positions, actually. Right. But it's also interesting about The violent takeover that Marx may or may not have predicted earlier was that I see all the violent threats coming from the extreme right. I don't see much violent threats coming at all in this country from the extreme right. And the context
1: in which Marx and even a person like uh, Vladimir Lenin were talking about violent overthrows of government, were really in the context of very authoritarian regimes, Uh, monarchies, uh, bourgeois republics where only 1% of the wealthy could vote, uh, you
0: know the the introduction, I think, of liberal democracy fundamentally changed that equation. So, can we walk down this mountain of inequality? What are your thoughts? What would Mark say now, if he was looking at Biden and Congress and you know, trying to figure out the new tax codes and the infrastructure and you know, yep. medical care? I think there possible.
1: are uh, three things that I would point to. One is uh, I think he would suggest in the current context that. You know, the COVID relief, the Biden infrastructure plans, uh, Bernie's plans, the the corporate tax increases, you know, are all a good first step. Uh, They're going to redistribute income. They're going to create jobs. And and these are all things that Marx advocates for in the Communist Manifesto, by the way. So Hmm. they're certainly consistent with his vision. But as he points out in that document, it's a first step. And based on the lessons he learned uh, in the course of European history, he'd say, but the second step is— If you don't get control of capital, you will never wrest political power from the ruling class. And one of the things he chastised uh, the workers in the Paris Commune of 1871 for was you didn't nationalize the big banks. You didn't take control of capital. You left that lever in their hands. And so I think he would suggest that probably the next step is, The next time you nationalize these banks, which, by the way, we've already done multiple (laughs) times in this country, don't give them back. Keep them. We paid for them. Use them to pursue progressive policies. The third thing, then, I think you would argue is, and you have to redistribute wealth, not just income. And you can do that by promoting small businesses, but more importantly, cooperatives employee stock ownership employee owned firms uh you know some limited state ownership of enterprise you talked about the public transit systems a perfectly example of a publicly owned enterprise and so i think he would say that you need to increase the democratization of the economy and its ownership not just the income
0: it generates okay well i think we'll wrap up with that Certainly, this issue of inequality is not going away. You can't open a newspaper or you know look at a website without reading about it. It's actually a global issue. It's actually even responsible for the crisis on the border. So, we well, if ta- we
1: took those same numbers that we used for the United States and yeah. looked at them on a global scale, the yeah. inequality would be even more striking.
0: Yes, yes. I think we may talk about the global inequality and the issues that, that the world is facing in terms of immigration, in terms of political instability throughout the planet in another episode. As always, Clyde, thanks a hell of a lot. This was a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate your time. Enjoyed it. Thanks. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated, all rights reserved.